We come to you, Father, with thanksgiving for the greatness of your name and for the glory of your power and majesty as we read of all that you have done through the pages of Scripture. We thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are the God of might and miracle in this day, just as you have been in every age. And then, Father, we ask for your special blessing upon us here this morning. We're grateful that we're able to gather and be one in the Spirit here. And again, we acknowledge the fact that it's the Spirit of God who is our teacher. And we ask that the Word will be made clear to us and that we will apply it to our daily living. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 19. I'd like to begin reading at verse 12. Genesis 19, 12. Then the men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law, and your sons, and your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because their outcry has become so great before the Lord, that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. And when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hands of, hand of his wife and the hands of his daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. And it came about when they had brought them outside that one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you. And do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains lest you be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. And behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small? That my life may be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar, which we noted means insignificant. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from, heaven, from, from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. We think we have problems. <laughs> uh, here we're looking at, a, of course, a catastrophe of major, of major proportions. Obviously to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah of ultimate <laughs> proportions. We noted last week at the, at the end of class that the angels physically drug Lot and his family out of Sodom that very day. And you notice how Lot reacted to it all. First of all, we noticed that he hesitated, and that's why they had to drag him out. He, he wasn't too sure he wanted to do this. And we talked about that a little bit. 
And then when he gets outside the city, he says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong, guys. Yes, you've, you've saved us thus far, but we, we can't flee to the mountains because we'll die up there. So can we go to this little town? It's, it's just a little town right over there. Can we go there? And the angel, as we noted, had to be in Im instant communication with the Lord because the angel was able to say, okay, we grant you that right. You may, you may go to that little town, and therefore we will not destroy that town. And so he fled. This, of course, as the scripture says, was the result of the compassion of the Lord. He had great compassion on Lot. And we also discover from scripture it was because of the prayer of Abraham. Now, the Arab village of Zoar, which exists today, is located about five miles south of the Dead Sea. On the east side of the valley, now, again, if you can just kind of picture this, the Dead Sea is at the lowest point of a rift valley that comes through. It begins up in Lebanon. It's called the Bekaa Valley up there. It comes through the Sea of Galilee, through the Jordan Valley, through the Dead Sea, through the heart of the Arabah into the uh, Gulf of Aqaba, through that, through the Red Sea, then on into Africa. The Dead Sea is at the low point of the Rift Valley as it runs through Lebanon and Israel and through the edge of the Sinai. The area south, immediately south of the Dead Sea, is a plain, which kind of is funnel-shaped because it tends to pick up elevation the further south you get, although the whole thing is still below sea level until you get clear down to the Gulf of Aqaba. On the east side of this valley, which is called the Valley of Sidim or the Valley of Salt, as we read it here in Scripture, is located the little village of Zoar today. And it's located where the Nahal Zared comes out and empties into the vale there, the valley. And that is really the only of the many streams that come down from the mountains of Edom there that is generally perennial. That is, some water is flowing through it most of the time. Most of those wadis, as the Arabs call them, uh, have water occasionally, but not always. But the Zered normally flows except in extremely dry seasons. This is the traditional site of ancient Zoar. Many of the uh, geographers who have studied this feel that probably the Arab village of Zoar represents the original site of the little town of Zoar. Now, there are two <laughs> theories as to where the five cities were, the five cities of the plain. One, the old traditional theory is that the four cities that were destroyed are underneath the southern end of the Dead Sea. That's the traditional theory, partly because no evidence uh, of the cities has been located until rather recent times. And so many argue that, hey, you know, it was after the destruction that the Dead Sea spread that far south, uh, must have rained more in those days, and, and the Jordan River poured more water into the Dead Sea, so it, it overflowed and went further south. Now, if you've seen that part of uh, Israel today, you know that the southern end of the Dead Sea is cut off from the northern end, except by a canal, which they have cut, to keep some water flowing in so it won't completely dry up. But so much water is being taken off today out of the Jordan River and out of the uh, Yarmuk, and which, which meets the Jordan just south of the, of the Sea of Galilee, that there's not as much water flowing into the Dead Sea anymore, so its level is falling. This, of course, is a characteristic which is happening many places in Asia today. The other theory 
is, and this is built on recent archaeological evidences, was that the five cities were lined up on the east side of the valley, sort of like beads on a string, uh, one, two, three, four, five, and that you can go there today and see these little flat spots where the wadis open up onto the valley there, and they feel from what evidence they've been able to dig up that this, these may have been the sites of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, the four cities that were destroyed. And so Zoar, being probably the southernmost of the cities, was uh, preserved in the midst of this calamity. Now, wherever they were located, whether as some modern geographers of the Holy Land think, or other the, under the southern end of the Dead Sea, God destroyed the four while preserving Zoar. Now, a couple of interesting natural means are suggested as having been a part of or maybe the actual uh, cause of the destruction of the cities. First of all, it's argued that God may have used a great earthquake to do this, to, to bring the destruction to these cities. Now, the Valley of Sedim, as I mentioned to you before, is located in that great rift valley. It's the greatest rift valley on the, surf, on the land surface of planet Earth. It makes the San Andreas Fault look like a little crack in your concrete in comparison. It's a massive thing that runs through Africa. The Lake Victoria is in the heart of it. Uh, lakes uh, Tanganyika and Nyasa are located in this. And, of course, Lake Tanganyika is second deepest lake in the world at over 4,000 feet deep, located in this same crack. And this crack goes out to sea at the mouth of the Mozambique, uh, of the Zambezi River in Mozambique. This massive thing, which the cliffs can be seen in East Africa, just escarpments that just drop off into a, a relatively deep valley. This is a great rift zone, and all along rift zones you have earthquakes happening very, very frequently, just as we do along the San Andreas here in California. So, the argument is that God simply triggered a massive earthquake at this particular time, and that you've got here a natural explanation for, for what happened. Such an earthquake could have released the gases and hydrocarbons carbons that were trapped in the many petroleum seeps in the area and thus thrown into the atmosphere a great cloud of explosive material and then a lightning storm which may have been associated with this set it off and created a massive explosion. This is one theory. <laughs> Sounds a little complicated. But nevertheless, you'll discover that some people studying Scripture just cannot study it without trying to find a natural cause for everything uh, that they read about there. It's like reading the, uh, some of the recent accounts, I just keep, hardly keep from laughing at some of them, about uh, how the Dead Sea was parted and, and how it was that uh, staffs were turned into snakes you know, by, the, uh, by Aaron uh, before Pharaoh, uh, Moses. It, you know, it's really humorous, some of the answers. They, I mean, they're far more hard to believe than just to have faith that God did it. <laughs> a second possible natural explanation that many bring up is that a great volcanic eruption occurred, again, triggered, of course, by God. You've got to get God in there somehow. Now, volcanoes are often associated with earthquake zones, and many volcanic structures are located along the East African Rift. Numerous ones are. And there's great evidence of volcanic eruption in the Near East. In fact, if you go out into modern-day Jordan in the northern part, there's a massive area there of basaltic outpouring, which occurred obviously sometime in the past. 
So the argument is that this was the result of volcanic activity. Now, most of us are familiar with what happened to Mount St. Helens about a decade or 12 or so years ago when the volcano exploded laterally and this tremendous firestorm came down the mountain and obliterated, what, 150 square miles of uh, forest. And if you've ever been up there, I mean, it's really, you can really see the magnitude of that disaster even 10, 12 years later. And so it's argued that something like this may have happened. Well, we know that this can do this because in 1902, on the island of Martinique, uh, Pelé volcano exploded laterally and destroyed the town of St. Pierre. And 30,000 people were snuffed out almost instantaneously as this great firestorm, what the French called Nouet Ardent, this glowing cloud, came down the mountain. And they say the intensity was so great that wrought iron railings were all melted and twisted in all kinds of forms. And everybody was uh, incinerated except one person who was underground in a dungeon. He was the only guy who survived <laughs> this whole thing and could tell a little bit about what it was like. It was so bad that the ships in the harbor were all incinerated by the uh, flame. So we know that this kind of destruction is possible on a natural basis. But did God do it this way? Well, the scripture simply says, as we read there, that God poured out from heaven fire and brimstone. God doesn't need volcanoes or earthquakes or electrical storms. He doesn't need anything of that nature. He can just so order it, and it happens. And from heaven fell this great catastrophe. Whether he used a natural cause or not becomes rather irrelevant. We just know that he did it. And it's not, we, our, our faith in what happened here doesn't have to be dependent upon whether we can find some natural means to understand it, because otherwise uh, some feel it's, it's got to be a fairy story unless you can show a natural cause. I feel sorry for the God uh, that they believe in. Think about it. Many, many centuries later, Elijah would pray a simple prayer on the top of Mount Carmel, and fire would fall from heaven and burn up the offering and lick up all the water that had been poured on the offering. If God could do that for the simple prayer of Elijah to illustrate his reality in a power encounter with Baal, what could God do for a city which, or a set of cities that he had ordained were worthy of judgment? He certainly could have done the same thing on a more massive scale in Abraham's day. Brimstone the word brimstone actually means burning stone. It comes from the Hebrew word gofrith. The term probably refers to any kind of burning stone. In other words, lava would be brimstone. Smoking sulfur would be brimstone. Uh, any kind of rock-like material which was burning would, be, would fit within the general description of the Hebrew word. Now what is interesting is that in the Septuagint, they've translated this word by the Greek word theion. I don't know if I said that right, but T-H-E-I-O-N, which basically means God's fire. And obviously the interpretation indicates that they believe that God did it, no matter what it was or what its origin was. And the term often seems to imply a sulfurous compound of some sort, which is glowing hot. Now, the word brimstone is used in the Old Testament seven times, and always it's used in reference to judgment, 
to destruction and to desolation. Let's just look at a couple of the examples. One is in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 22. Deuteronomy 29, 22. Now the generation to come, your sons who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a distant land, when, he, when they see the plagues of the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it, will say, all its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive. No grass grows in it, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Obviously, the implication is desolation, something that has been subjected to the judgment of God and has been rendered thus sterile. That is the direct implication, and brimstone seems to always be used within that context. Now, if you turn to the 38th chapter of Ezekiel, you, you discover that it's used in reference to a, a future event, to the judgment upon Gog. At least we assume that that is a future event. Uh, Ezekiel 38:22, And with pestilence and with blood I shall enter into judgment with him. And I shall reign on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him, a torrential rain with hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Quite a combination when you think about it, isn't it? Hailstones, which are generated by massive thunderstorms and come down like big blocks of ice, and then <laughs> fire and brimstone at the same time seem to be almost uh, opposing concepts here. But this demonstrates something of the great power and majesty of God. And, of course, the, con the most important thing to understand is that God is in that process bringing down, down judgment. Now, in the New Testament, the word brimstone is used eight times. Once in Luke, in Luke 17, where we won't turn to it, but it's a direct reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's just talking about what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. All the remaining times that the word brimstone is used are found in Revelation. Three times are there, it's associated with the sixth trumpet in the ninth chapter where the context implies the color and the smell of sulfur, sulfurous type uh, implication. Four times it's used in association with eternal punishment. And one of those examples is in Revelation 19. Just like to turn to that, read that one verse here. Revelation 19:20 which refers to what happens to the beast and the kings of the earth. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Pretty ghastly concept when you think about that from what we understand of brimstone from scripture it's it's pretty horrifying uh, to think of what this lake of fire must really be like whatever it is god used and whatever all of these things would would could be defined as by modern science what we have here is total destruction god carrying out total judgment on these four cities of the Valley of Sidim. In verse 25 of the passage in Genesis 19, you discover that the cities were 
obliterated. So much so that no one today can prove where the sites of those cities were. All the people were killed, and it says there that everything that grew on the ground was wiped out. Grass, which meant, of course, implication would be all the animals were destroyed. I mean, it was gone in a moment. It was all gone. <laughs> that should teach us at least one thing about the value of hoarding the goods of this world unto ourselves, right? It can be gone instantaneously. <laughs> if our heart is in it, it can be a disheartening experience, to say the least. Lot and his family were commanded as they fled to not even look back. Now, sometimes we get the feeling that God was trying to hide something here and he didn't want them to see what he was doing. But I think the real meaning here is illustrated by what did happen. Because in verse 26... We read, but his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. She couldn't restrain herself. She just had to look back. She was judged instantly. And scripture says turned into a, quote, pillar of salt. Now she may have been Part of the reason why Lot dallied in the first place, where it says back there, he hesitated. Did he hesitate for his own motivations only, or was his wife a part of this? Reason for his hesitation. Was it partly due to his wife that he asked if they couldn't go to Zoar instead of fleeing to the mountains? Was it kind of her pressure upon him? Well, we don't know that. It doesn't say. We don't even know where Lot got his wife. There's no reference to Lot having a wife while he's with Abraham. Did he have a wife when he was with Abraham? Well, if he did, the scripture doesn't mention her. So it's possible that she was a Sodomite. He may have married her in Sodom. And this may explain a lot as to his hesitation and his compromise and his love for that particular city, in spite of the fact the scripture tells us in the New Testament that his heart was tortured by the evil that was all around him. But he stayed anyway. Now, if she were a sodomite, you could understand why she would be loath to leave the area. I mean, this was her home. This is where she was born and raised. This, these were her people. Her other family members lived here. Her best friends were here. You know, her sewing circle or her whatever, you know. All, all these people were there. The people that she went to market with, the people that she conversed with. She was going to have to leave not only her friends, but all of her possessions, everything she had known, to go to the little town of Zoar. Now, she may have been to Zoar before. They probably traveled back and forth these different places. Zoar being, quote, insignificant, as its name implied, may not have been a place they rushed to very often. You know, the, probably the biggest mall wasn't there. It's probably in Sodom or maybe in Gomorrah. Who knows? Whatever was the case, though, it appears that she looked back, not out of curiosity as we often feel, but wistfully. And I think this is the whole teaching here. It wasn't that God was going to smack her down because she was just so curious she just couldn't keep from looking. It was a wistful look as she turned to look back at the city. The, in fact, the term looked back has in it, in the Hebrew, the connotation of gazing. 
not only gazing, but the word can mean sustained favorable contemplation. In other words, she turned and looked back with longing and desire. Oh, how I hate. I don't want to leave this place. I wish I could go back. It wasn't just kind of, whoa, what's God going to do, you know? I don't think that was it at all. She, this was where her heart was. You know, as the scripture says, where your treasure is, your heart will be. And I think that was her treasure. Even though she had her husband and her two daughters, she had a greater treasure in, in this city. And so she turned and looked, and God judged her instantly. Notice it says she was behind Lot. Now, I think she was probably trailing quite a ways behind, and he was probably yelling at her, but he had to do it this way. Hurry up, you know, because he wasn't supposed to look back. <laughs> and she was just trailing further and further behind, and I think it was causing great consternation to Lot as she lagged further and further behind. But she didn't want to give up the life she had known. I think that this is what's implied as we read this passage where Christ refers back to this in Luke chapter 17. Let me just read a couple of verses there from Luke 17, uh, beginning at verse 32. Christ is in this process talking about the future events and the the coming of judgment and of the second coming of Christ and so forth being foretold. And he's saying, you know, just, just take off. Don't leave everything. Don't uh, grasp after the things of this world. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life shall lose it, and whoever loses his life shall preserve it. Now, think about that for a minute. It, those two don't even seem like they belong together, right? Unless you interpret Lot's wife, as one who was seeking to keep her life as she had known it. She didn't want to give it up, and therefore she lost everything. I think that that is really an important understanding for us, to remember Lot's wife, not because she was curious, but because she had this heart's desire for the life that she had left behind. And of course, you know, had the destruction already began, had it begun before she turned around or, or not? It's hard to know for certain at that point. Now, pillar of salt. What, what really does this mean? The word pillar, the Hebrew word which is translated here pillar, is used a dozen times in the Old Testament. And this is the only place that it's translated pillar. The other places it's translated garrison. You say, well, no, that doesn't seem to be even close, a garrison and a pillar. The root of it means to take a stand. Well, a pillar takes a stand, right? It's right here. It's going nowhere. The idea is, though she was taking her stand, she had finally decided, I want to go back. That's where my heart is. I want. She made her decision. It wasn't a, just a little glance of curiosity. It was... A full, probably a 180-degree turn, and, and in her heart she wanted to head back and probably would have walked back in that direction had the city not been totally destroyed at that uh, moment or in the, in the process of destruction. She took her stand, and so God gave her the desire of her heart, and she was transformed into salt. She might have been converted into some kind of a five-and-a-half-foot-tall 
pile of salt. You know, it, it seems to imply maybe something like that. It may have just been a pile that didn't even look like a person, you know, just kind of a lump of salt uh, sitting out there. I, I would think that's probably a little more likely. Uh, it could be even that uh, she was, you know, just overcome by the uh, fallout and that as time progressed, she became a cast of salt, just like you probably have seen the excavations done at Pompeii, where they uncovered the uh, casts of people who had died and all the ash had fallen on them and their bodies had rot rotted away. In the meantime, other stuff had percolated in and filled up the hole where their body had been. And now they have these perfect casts of people in all kinds of contortions, you know, who died in the uh, destruction of Pompeii. Well, maybe, maybe it's something like that. I don't know. If it is, nobody's ever found her. I think whatever the details were, and, and the scripture doesn't give us minute details of some things because those details are not what's critical. What's critical here, the message that's clear, is that if we long for the things of this world rather than of the things of God, we will suffer tragic loss. As the scripture says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things that we might need and want of this life uh, especially, of course, the spiritual things which are so important, the comfort, the peace, the, con the sense of value will be given unto us. And to fail to understand that, and unfortunately we see this a lot in our churches today, even evangelical churches of America, where it seems that so many are not seeking first the kingdom of God, they are seeking the things of this world. And uh, it's almost like they believe the bumper sticker that we've laughed at so many times, you know, that he who dies with the most toys wins. Wins what? They ought to say what he wins. <laughs> Eternal damnation. That's not such an <laughs> exciting thought when it comes right down to it. What's, to me, what's very interesting about that is they never, they've never read Ecclesiastes. <laughs> who say that? Because when you die, you may die with the most toys, but who gets your toys? You know, your kids who may not appreciate them. <laughs> and all your labor and all your efforts are, really can be for naught. Now, for the Christian, such an attitude of heart can mean early removal from this life. Now, think of the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, whatever we want to try to put into that story theologically, we cannot prove that Ananias and Sapphira were not true believers. But they, 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 in, in their folly, they chose to lust after the things of this world, and, and God judged them. And they were taken out of this life. It can mean standing empty-handed before the judgment seat of Christ and not really receiving, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. 1 Corinthians 3, 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, 
he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. This seems to imply, taking Ananias and, and Sapphira as an example, if they were truly believers, then they fit into this latter category. They built with wood, hay, and stubble, and therefore they would be saved, if they were true believers, by fire, but they had nothing to show for the life which they had lived. And this is really, I think, a serious and a tragic thing. We often don't think down the line that far because we think about the fact that tells us in Revelation that he shall walk, wash away every tear. And so we say, well, you know, yeah, that's a problem, but it won't be a big problem because it'll all be okay in the end. I don't think we know enough theologically about all of this to quite be that confident uh, about saying that. I think we need to be very, very concerned. If God says that this is what we ought to do, I think that we need to take seriously that this is what we ought to do. And to do otherwise, I think we'll reap serious complications in this life as well as at the time we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 27 of Genesis 19. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Lot had fled to Zoar. His wife had been judged. Judgment fell upon the city, the cities of the plain. And Abraham, remembering his encounter with God the day or the days before, however many days, we can't be certain, at least one day before, maybe more than one, he went out to the little hillock where he had stood before God at, who, who came in the form of a man and had interceded. And we read about that wonderful intercession that Abraham made there that day. And he went out on that very hillock to look down and see what it is that God had chosen to do. And the scripture says, as, as he looked off to the southeast, 40, 40, 45 miles away, he saw the smoke of the great firestorm ascending up above the valley of Sidim. Can you imagine the emotion it must have struck into the heart of Abraham? I mean, he had with intensity interceded before the Lord. And yet his faith was in God. I think he believed that whoever was righteous, God would spare in spite of the destruction. The smoke was thick and billowing. It says, the Hebrew here says it was the smoke as if it were the smoke of a great pottery kiln billowing up. I think it can be shown that few disasters in history can meet the intensity of a great firestorm. Those of you who are familiar with World War II know that in 1945, before we ever dropped the atomic bombs, we had flown a major mission over Tokyo. It was a night mission in which incendiary bombs were used. And a massive section of that city was set afire. And those who were in it, and there are the Japanese who survived who described that, said that the fires generated such a storm that hurricane force winds were sweeping across the city. It was like a giant chimney. 
and, and the winds were just accelerating the, the flames and it was, they became like blowtorch flames as they swept across the wooden structures of that city. And the only people who were saved were those who dove into the river. The rest were just incinerated. 100,000 people perished in that single firestorm, which was greater than the loss, than the, at least the immediate loss of life in either the Nagasaki or the Hiroshima uh, blast. Now, when you count the later deaths due to radiation, uh, those numbers grow larger. But it was, a, it was a great tragedy for that city and for its people. And it was a firestorm generated by the massive fires which created this chimney-like condition and, and thus brought the winds in to torch the city. I think it's not unlike what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. Everything was just annihilated. Verse 29, though, summarizes the fruit of Abraham's intercession. God remembered Abraham. Now remember, these are always given in an anthropomorphic way. God never forgot Abraham. God was the one who inspired Abraham to intercede. In our flesh is no good thing, the scripture says. It's only by the power of God that he interceded before the Lord God. And as he did so, God answered and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, it says there in verse 29. He sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. Why? Because back in verse 16, it says, the compassion of the Lord was upon him. The many, many things you could say about this. I mean, what kind of a man was Lot? Well, we know from what we read before, what we read here, and now what we'll read shortly, he wasn't exactly your, your paragon of virtue. He wasn't one who could say, like the Apostle Paul, follow in my steps. He was a man with many faults and many failings, but God's compassion was upon him. And the Scripture calls him in the New Testament a righteous man because that righteousness had been imputed upon him by the Lord. So the fruit of Abraham's intercession, God answered Abraham's prayer. All the righteous were saved. One man. Of course, his two daughters were saved too. And his wife would have been saved, except her heart was turned to the things of this world. Now, the Hebrew word here, uh, interestingly enough, in that uh, verse 29, where it says, in the midst of the overthrow, and he overthrew the cities, which was used to describe this destruction, many commentators feel that because the word overthrow is used, that probably there may have been a great earthquake that accompanied this great destruction, and that it, it shook the cities to their foundation, and then on top of this, of course, the great firestorm came. Well, whether that's the implication of the, of the word or not, really, again, as I said before, rather irrelevant to the whole story. Read verse 30, if you will, to the end of the uh, chapter. And Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains, and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. And he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and let us lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And it came about on the morrow that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. 
Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. And the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And as for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. And he is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. Tragic. Scripture is not noted for pulling its punches. Scripture tells it like it was. It's interesting to note that he had pled, oh no, let me go to Zoar. I don't want to go in the mountains because I'll die up there if I go in the mountains. Let us go to Zoar. And now what do we discover? He didn't stay in Zoar. He left Zoar because the scripture says he was afraid. He fled to the mountains, which is where he was told to go in the first place. Why? Why did he not stay in Zoar? After all, it more reflected the life he had known these last many years. Why did he flee now to the mountains? What well, says he was afraid, but why was he afraid? Well, I think there are at least three possibilities here. Zoar was a strange town. It was a dinky town. It, it wasn't near the magnitude of Sodom. And his, his wife was gone, and she may have been the, the driving factor that caused him to ask if they couldn't go to Zoar. It could be that she just couldn't stand the idea of, of having to live out in the boondocks, so to speak. And so he asked to go there, but now it had little appeal because his wife was gone. In fact, it may have reminded him of what he had lost, the city life, all his possessions, his wife. He had to get away from it. Was that the reason? Maybe. But I think another reason which may have created the fear was that the people of Zoar were suspicious of this man. He's a stranger. He was not a native Sodomite. And yet he had fled from Sodom and had arrived in Zoar. And he and his daughters were, as far as anybody knew, the only survivors of the Holocaust. The only survivors. How come you survived? Remember, these were pagan people. Pagan people believe in all kinds of strange things and omens. And the fact that this man and his two daughters, who weren't native Sodomites, at least he wasn't, were the only survivors may have been to them a very, very bad omen. And they may have been very threatening towards him because they may have felt that you're going to bring it on us too. Remember when jo Jonah was in the ship? Uh, they drew lots and, and they decided that because the lot fell on Jonah that Jonah was really the guilty person. I mean... How many of us today believe that an individual sin is result, going to result in a great storm that comes over? Most of us won't believe that, but they did. That was a typical pagan way of thinking. They didn't understand the natural world. They didn't understand lightning and thunder and all these different things. And so they even named their gods. You know, Thor of the Germans was the great thunderbolt thrower and Zeus of the Greeks. And you know, this was the way they thought. And so they may have thought, you're the guilty party. For what happened or maybe you're going to bring it on us so they may have become threatening and so he decided let's leave another possibility is that although Zoar survived all the comforts and the pleasures of the valley were gone everything was destroyed 
except the little town of Zoar. And the pall of destruction, can you imagine the, the massive clouds of dust and, and, and gray that must have hung over the valley for a long time after the destruction? Who knows? Maybe there were numerous aftershocks that kept shaking the place, reminding him of what had happened. Well, whatever was the cause, whether he finally realized that the instructions of the angels were best, or he just fled totally out of fear and despair. He took his two daughters and said, let us flee unto the hills. And so he did. Now their home was gone. All their possessions were gone. So where did they live? Scripture says they lived in a cave. Kind of primitive lifestyle. You think about living in a cave, you have to realize, first of all, it's important to chase whatever is living in it first out. <laughs> you probably don't want to cohabitate with... Uh, various other beings that might be living there. It's obvious from verses 31 and 32 of this particular passage that Lot had not taught his daughters about Yahweh. Lot knew who Yahweh was. After all the time he had spent with Abraham, he knew who Yahweh was. He had seen the power. He had heard Abraham's recounting of his visitation with Yahweh, and yet he had not taught his daughters about faith in Yahweh. Why did they think that they would not have an opportunity to marry and have children? Why did they think that way? Did they think that the destruction was so widespread that all the men of marriageable age were gone? That there weren't any left on the planet? More probably, they thought they were going to have to continue to live in a cave, you know, in the wilderness, and who wants to marry a cave woman, you know? Kind of idea, maybe. An isolated life where they would have no real contact with, with men of marriageable age. Possibly, they believed that since they were basically destitute, where would the dowry come from? You can't get a husband without a dowry. Uh, now today, we, we, that's kind of almost silly to us because we know that in our society, generally speaking, it's a man meets woman and, you know, electricity flies between them and they decide that they ought to be husband and wife, and, and quite often finances have almost nothing to do with it. Not always. <laughs> you always wonder about these uh, people, you know, where somebody 80 years old marries somebody 25. You wonder, why does that 25-year-old marry that 80-year-old? You probably think there's something other than electricity uh, that is the um, cause for that particular thing to take place. No dowry. I think that was probably most, one of the most driving factors here to the way they thought. Now, just think, if, Abraham, uh, if Lot had maintained good relationships and communications with Abraham, he could have fled to Abraham. He could have gone to his uncle. I mean, at least he'd have gone to a, a safe haven. And he certainly, you would think, would know in his heart that Abraham, being a godly man, would accept him. But Lot probably was down on himself, feeling guilty and remorseful, for all that he had done and all that had happened. And so he did not turn to Abraham. I think had he fled to Abraham, this problem would never have happened. Because first of all, Abraham probably would have had amongst the thousands that worked for him eligible young men who had been glad to marry the young ladies. Or he would have said, hey, man, I'll give you whatever dowry you need. And he was a man of, of uh, you know, magnanimous man. I think he would have done that. And it was the folly of Lot to not to flee to Abraham. I think in this all, we need to remember that Satan is always nearby 
as we go through difficult circumstances. He knows when we're in trouble or when we think we're in trouble. And he's there to, you know, in our ear, so to speak, and to insinuate that our only hope for survival, our only hope of salvaging anything is to compromise. We've got to compromise. Now, we, we can't just go straight by the Word of God because that's too strict, it's too narrow, and, and God didn't understand this situation. And, uh, you know, Scripture wasn't written about every problem that we might encounter. Therefore, you know, we've got to use our heads. He will encourage us to rationalize and to decide it's necessary sometimes to violate God's specific commands. For example, let's take the person who says, well, I know the Scripture says to not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, but given my circumstance and given the fact that I've come to love this person, I, I'm going to marry him anyway, and God will understand, and God will make it work all right, and God will save him or her. This is rationalization. However, when we do that, we're not listening to the counsel of God. We're listening to the counsel of the serpent. And we know what the serpent's counsel was like. All you have to do is go back to the beginning of Genesis and read about his counsel there. It's something less than the best counsel we can get, to say the least. The scripture is full of examples of God saving his people out of impossible situations, right? I mean, read it in the old, we read it in the new, and God miraculously saves his people out of far worse situations than Lot's faced at this particular time. Let me end, we're out of time here, but let me end with this passage that's so encouraging and comforting in uh, Psalm 34. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and what? The Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Why? The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. I mean, that's a positive, all circumstances inclusive statement. It doesn't matter how difficult we think our problems are. God hears our prayer. God is there. God rescues us. If our faith is in him, he will rescue us no matter how hard and impossible it may seem. And when we compromise... We try to bring a little worldly wisdom in here and uh, do the things which the enemy is whispering in our ear. We make the situation worse. And if Lot isn't an example of that, I don't know what is. Can you imagine anything worse than your two daughters being pregnant by you, their father, and your two grandsons being your sons? That was not even acceptable practice among most heathen cultures in that day except sometimes amongst the lords, you know, the, the ruling princes like in Egypt or something. But un, amongst the common people, it, incest was known and incest was practiced. But this kind of incest is incest of the worst order and wasn't generally even acceptable in pagan society, let alone in God's program. Well, we'll finish up the chapter. A little bit more to go here next week.